Well, the Canucks give a valiant effort, but they fall short in a must-win game in Minnesota. It is the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. Jamie Dodd at Canucks Insider, Thomas Drantz, here with you. Final episode of the week before the weekend. Of course, Drantzer also covers the team at The Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. AvenueMachinery.ca. Drancer, after another loss, now back-to-back losses for the Canucks, this time in regulation against the Minnesota Wild. They are not mathematically eliminated from playoff contention, but the writing very, very clearly on the wall at this point, and things would have to get truly, truly wacky uh, for the playoff hopes to be resuscitated for the Canucks at this point. Yes, truly wacky, like the goaltending situation in Vegas. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah, I honestly, what? I'm just wrapping my head around that one. Um, look, the Vancouver Canucks played really well last night. I thought it was a gutsy effort. I thought they were the better team, five on five. I thought they actually replicated for 45 minutes of the game. Take away the first seven minutes and the last eight. And I think you get 45 minutes in which they played the way they had to play. Unfortunately, against an elite opponent like Minnesota, 45 minutes of how you need to play is not enough. And they capitalized on the 15 minutes that the Canucks weren't sharp. Um, I also thought they took advantage of a, of a rare off game by Thatcher Demko. And this is not to criticize Thatcher, right? Playing his third game in four nights. Mm-hmm. He's the reason the Canucks are here. He's the reason the Canucks, the singular number one reason why the Canucks had a chance this late in the season is that Thatcher Demko has been the best goalie in hockey five on five and probably a top three goaltender overall. And he started the third most games and he's been their MVP bar none and nothing that happens can change that. But, you know, that was one of those games where usually when the Canucks play that way, he's only allowed two goals and they win three or four two. And last night, they didn't have the best goaltender on the ice. It's one of like five games they've played in the last 50 games where that's been true. And there's no margin for error for this team when they don't have the wind at their backs, right? They, they don't control play well enough. They don't defend well enough. They don't transition well enough. And without Demko being a hero, you know, things can look a little dicey. And they did last night. Um, it's an unfortunate way for the season to end, but you've got to tip your cap to guys like Brad Richardson and Luke Shen and JT Miller, who played with a ton of gumption, a ton of grit. Um, you know, you love what you saw in the latter half of the season from the Canucks. They made it mm-hmm. fun. They made it entertaining. I think they've created a sense of optimism going into the offseason. It's been a long time since since I felt that locally. But, you know, there's still serious work ahead. And I, I do think if you watch that game objectively and think about how the Canucks looked and think about how the Oliver Ekman Larson and Tyler Myers pair looked um, and think about how Minnesota's depth just came in waves, even though they're down four or five key players, you know, it does underline some of the work ahead to, to close the gap between teams like Minnesota and a team like Vancouver. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. There's a lot to get into from the game last night, and it's not time to get into full-on you know season post-mortem for the Canucks, but because of the significance 
of last night's loss and what it likely means in, in, in you know, overwhelmingly likely means for the Canucks playoff chances, I, I think it kind of makes sense to evaluate what we saw last night in the context of the team's entire season and particularly uh, their push in the latter half of the season as well. And, you know, on the Demko point specifically, I, I was listening to the postgame show last night and there was a lot of of anger directed at Thatcher Demko for the performance he turned in. And I, I suppose, I, I know, I know. I suppose what? a small part of me can understand the emotional reaction right after the fact of a loss, a decisive loss potentially for your team uh, near the end of the season. But at the same time, I mean, how on earth do we end up getting angry at Thatcher Demko for anything he's done this season? When you look at just the sheer volume of games he's played, not to mention the importance he's had for this team and the burden he's had to carry by so consistently being their best player. As you said it, he's, if you were to isolate just one thing to explain why the Canucks had a chance in, you know, game 77, game 78 of the season to still make the playoffs a reality, if you were to isolate just one thing, it would be Thatcher Demko's play. No doubt about it, right? Beyond Bruce Boudreau, beyond JT Miller, beyond Elias Pettersson's resurgence, any of that, it would be Thatcher Demko. And look, last night, he wasn't at his best. There's no arguing that, right? That was not a uh, top-of-his-game Thatcher Demko performance. As you said, he wasn't the best goalie on the ice, but I don't think you can take that one game in isolation and kind of vent your frustrations at Thatcher Demko. Again, you have to look at the whole thing in context, and not only... Drancer, has he played a tremendous amount of games this year in his first season? Third most appearances in the NHL this year. Yeah, in his first season as a number one workhorse goalie, no less. But even if you just zoom into the last week, that was his third game in four nights. And we talked going into the Ottawa game about, you know, both of us thought it was very wise to start Yarrow Halak in that game for this very reason. And I think that take is vindicated based on what we saw from Thatcher Demko. It's the total workload of the season, but also specifically the fact that he had to play his third and four nights. Both of those, to me, directly responsible for what we saw from Thatcher Demko last night in Minnesota. And I just don't think it makes any sense to pin the blame at the guy who has inarguably been the team's MVP this year. No, it makes no sense at all. But here's the here's the thing it highlights for me with a long horizon. And we're going to get back to talking about the Canucks' extraordinarily slim playoff chances. I mean, there's still a chance. I think these guys have earned enough respect that we won't do too much navel-gazing and looking ahead. But one thing that you need to keep in mind, right, is that this season the Canucks have had the best 5-on-5 goaltending in hockey. The only, like, they're, they're about to become the second team in 15 years to miss the playoffs with the best five-on-five goaltending in hockey. The o- the other team was a Florida Panthers team in 2008-2009 that was, like, so bad their leading scorer had 45 points, right? I mean, but there was no chance, uh, even with Thomas Vokun playing out of his mind, um, that they were going to make the playoffs. Like, that's ignominious. And when you aren't winning and you have that type of edge in goal, in the most important position in the sport, like, that hints at the gap that you need like the gap that you need to close to be a team capable of winning on nights when your goaltender's not on which is essential the best teams with the best goaltenders have games where they have to win 5-4 where they have to win 4-3 sometimes in the playoffs sometimes in a really big game in the playoffs just look at the Tampa Bay Lightning and, and some of the games that they've had to fight through and win and some of the bounces that have gone against them and they've just kept coming right the gap that you need to close is big because 
as good as Demko is, and as much as I believe that he's going to give this team above average goaltending or better on a consistent basis going forward, teams don't repeat being the best save percentage team in hockey five on five. Like it is overwhelmingly likely that the Canucks won't be the best save percentage team in the NHL over 150, 164 game sample, right? They're probably going to be less able to rely on star level goaltending night in night out than they were this season next year. And so the gap has to be closed elsewhere. And that's sort of where, when I think about last night, like one thing that stands out to me as a factor in Vancouver's loss, and and this is always the case, but was the play of their defense. You know, you think about the impact that Travis Dermott has had in Vancouver. And for me, Dermott's a nice player, but he doesn't move the needle. And yet, just by being fast and and basically competent, he stands out in such a major way on this defense core. He brings them something that they just haven't had nearly enough of, which is, you know, some push from the back end, some creative sort of problem solving against the forecheck on the back end. And you look at last night and, you know, for for all the good things the Canucks did five on five, they had Ekman Larson and Tyler Myers on the ice for 13 minutes. And in those 13 minutes, they were outscored four to eight and they are sorry, outshot four to eight outscored one to three. And that's it. Like that's the whole game. That's, that's it. Um, you know, it was five, eight in scoring chances. Like this team's defense core is not at the level where they're able to withstand games where Thatcher Demko's not dialed in and playing like the best goaltender on the planet. And if you can't win those games, I, I mean, there's a lot of work to do, period. And if you're looking for kind of lessons for the future from Demko's performance last night, I don't think it has anything to do with Thatcher Demko individually, right? Like the, the fact that maybe he had a a fatigue-related bad game late in the season, that doesn't make me sit here and say, oh, oh boy, is he up to handling the workload of being a number one goalie? It's not about Thatcher Demko. It's about how do you improve the environment in front of Thatcher Demko and also your backup situation. Because to be fair, things went a little haywire there in the middle of the season and Thatcher Demko had to play a ton of games when that would not have been ideally how you would have used him. But if you can improve... But they can't do that. They can't do that. They can't improve the backup situation. Well, right. Like they have, they have they're Spencer locked Martin. in. Yeah, but that's what and, I mean. But they have Spencer Martin plus 1.25 from Halak plus yeah. 1.9 from Holpe, right? So, like, they're actually going to be a top five spender in goal next season. And Demko's for sure going to need to be ready to play and win, you know, an awful lot of 62, 65 games again next season, right? Like, they're not set up to bring in a really good, reliable veteran goaltender they have to kind of roll the dice on a on a vet minimum guy in Spencer Martin now Spencer Martin's played really well I'm eager to see how he performs in the AHL playoffs I'd assume he'll be very good but you know there's so much there were so many chips pushed into the center of the table for this season that even next year they can't really insulate Demko properly Uh, they're going to need Spencer Martin to step up and show that he's an everyday NHL level backup goaltender. And that's a big ask. That's a big ask from a guy who's never done that before. Right. And the only way you kind of get out of the trap of feeling like you have to increase Demko's workload to that kind of 65 game threshold is look, putting aside the Spencer Martin thing, if you, if you are a team that can get yourself in a position where you're not living and dying with every game in March and April, right? That gives you so much more breathing room with how you handle your goaltending, right? It, it prevents you from feeling like you have to run your number one workhorse goalie into the ground. Now, 
it's obviously a massive challenge for the Canucks to be that kind of team that has that kind of breathing room. But it's not about, oh, Thatcher Demko needs to, uh, you know, build up his stamina so he can withstand this fatigue. It's the team needs to get better in front of Thatcher Demko so they are not so incredibly reliant on having him save game after game after game for them, right? That's the lesson. And again, to, to put that into practice for next season, extraordinarily challenging. But as you look at the final four seasons on Thatcher Demko's contract currently with the Vancouver Canucks, that should be the ultimate goal, right? He, you want him to be a luxury in the same way that Andre Vasilevsky is for the Tampa Bay Lightning, but you don't ha- you don't want him to be the absolute necessary reason uh, that your team is winning consistently. Because, again, you don't want to be the Rangers. No. Like, like, I mean, don't get me wrong. You want to be the Rangers in terms of their points haul this season. But, like, the Rangers aren't going to win the Cup. You know? Uh, they're not. You don't want to be the team that's in- incredibly reliant on one player, on one goaltender. You want to have that goaltender, but you want to be Tampa. You don't want to be the Rangers, yeah. right? Like, that's the... Or, or you don't want to be Nashville, right? You want to be the team where the goaltender is... You want to be, you want to be the Flames, right? You want to be the Calgary Flames. You want to be... You get a remarkable season from a goaltender. You want it to be like Darcy Kemper with the Colorado Avalanche, and you've sewn up the division by mid-March or the conference by mid-March. Like that's that's what you where you want to get to. That's where this team needs to get to, and it's going to take a lot of work. But but you certainly have to like the steps that guys like Pedersen yeah. and Pod Colson and some of the young players that really were pushing and played really well for Boudreaux since the coaching change, you certainly take heart from that and say, okay, there's some pieces to work with. This is not, you know, this is not a rebuild in that the next, the best players on the next great Canucks team, there's a lot of them that are probably already here, right? But that doesn't mean that you can be passive and conservative in your approach to upgrading what's around them if you're going to get to where you want to go. And, and in particular, and I think last night really emphasized it, spotlighted it again, although most Canucks losses have, you know, that starts with a significant reconstruction project on the blue line yes. for me. Uh, and uh, I believe it was Jason the Killer goalie, uh, yeah, texted in all along those same lines, right? I think one of the biggest issues or problems the Canucks need to address is their constant inability to get the puck out of their own zone and how often the opponent is able to keep the puck in, which then leads to a goal against. And of course, the number one way you address that is, as you said, some of the things that Travis Dermott has brought to the team, right? That problem-solving ability against the forecheck, that mobility, that extra little bit of uh, ability to move the puck that Dermott has compared to a lot of the Canucks defenders. You need more players like that and also higher quality of those skills than what Travis Dermott brings uh, up and down your blue line. Marcus and Gibson's text in, without Demko, we would have been mathematically out of the playoffs on March 1st, and somebody else texts in. Yeah, I mean, it's, look, mathematical, whatever, but it wouldn't have been anywhere this close. We all can agree on that. And another unsigned text, and I think this is a really important point. Demko has been the only player that has been great since day one, while the other players were sulking over not liking their coach or GM. Missing the playoffs is totally on the rest of the team. And if you are looking for just consistent from day one performers, you know, I think you could make an argument for Quinn Hughes and JT Miller in there as well. But Demko, the start of the season would have been even uglier without Thatcher Demko, right? He has been the absolute rock for this team all year long, even in the extremely dark days uh, of October and November for the Vancouver Canucks. 650-650 again is the Dunbar Lumber text line. I want to throw this out there, Drancer, because we did a a bit of a vibe check pregame yesterday going into the Minnesota game to see how fans were feeling 
And we got a lot of uh, fantastic Canucks fans gallows humor back, which did not materialize the nightmare scenario of winning these uh, those two games against Minnesota and Calgary and then losing to the Seattle Kraken. That is not going to happen. But I do want to take the temperature again today because I, I think it's interesting. This season for the Canucks has just been so fascinating. I think often when a bubble playoff team or also ran playoff team kind of has that what feels like the decisive blow, even if they're not mathematically eliminated. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of frustration, a lot of apathy, certainly some vitriol. And in this situation, and I know even hearing Bruce Boudreaux talk last night in the postgame availability, I find it pretty hard to muster the kind of outrage that this team is ultimately going to fall short because you just look at the effort they turned in in that game last night And, you know, you had JT Miller putting his body on the line. Brad Richardson wanting to come back into the game. Luke Shen doing his thing. The effort was clearly there. And the effort so clearly has been there for months, months and months at this point. And, look, it's fair to still ask questions about why the team got off to such a rocky start, why that effort wasn't there night in, night out early in the season. But I want to hear from fans it's just, are you are you frustrated, or is it more of a situation of, you know what, it's not going to happen, but i got to tip my hat uh, at what these guys were able to do? Because I think I'm pretty firmly in the latter camp, Drance, right? Like, I don't see a lot of sense in ripping the effort of the players. The effort's been phenomenal no, just to get them to no, this point. No, no, no. No, but the players deserve a tip of the cap without question. And for me, Bruce Boudreaux deserves a massive tip of the yes. cap, too. The problem is, the problem is, is when you zoom out and think about big picture. And I think it's possible to be both, you know, um, buoyed by the effort that you've seen from Canucks players and the steps that Pod Colson has taken this season and Elias Pettersson over the latter half of the campaign. And you can admire, you know, Besser's quick return from injury and how well he's played since stepping in the lineup and Garland figuring it out after a quarter of the season in which he, he seemed to be battling with some confidence levels and JT Miller's career year. Um, you know, even Oliver Ekman Larson's like classy defensive game, the way that him and him and Tyler Myers have punched, you know, well above their weight in really tough minutes. And certainly the spectacular play of Demko, who's beginning to cement himself as a top five goaltender. Like all of that is reason for optimism. And that can exist for me in concert with an understanding that this team pushed a ton of chips into the center of the table for the benefit of making the playoffs this year, for the benefit of building a playoff team. They sacrificed long-term flexibility. They absolutely allowed their prospect pipeline to atrophy, traded consecutive first-round picks and an additional second-round pick for the construction of this team. They made win-now moves in terms of the structure of their most important player's contract, Elias Pettersson being on a bridge deal, right? They pushed a lot of futures and a lot of future flexibility and a lot of wiggle room into the center of the table to construct this team and this team's going to fall short. And that's where I think fans should be really upset in my view, especially because we're talking about the age 23 and 22 seasons for Pedersen and Quinn Hughes. These are two players that the organization mined from a stretch of drafting in which they picked in the, you know, top seven or eight, four times in five years, right? Um, They've picked in the top, they picked in the top 10, uh, five and six years. And so you you add Pod Colson and Besser into that core group. There was a lot of pain that went into assembling this core group. And in the first prime-aged season of Pedersen and Hughes, with a 26-year-old starter who play, who's playing you know, at the absolute 
top of the league quality with between the pipes to miss the playoffs with that type of structural tactical approach all in on this season like that's galling and it's going to take years multiple seasons to get this project built around Pedersen and Hughes back on track that to me is really frustrating even if even if I can look at what the club has done on, uh, since you know Bruce Boudreau mm-hmm. took over and say, look, they were more entertaining to watch. I'm going into this offseason with a really high opinion of, of, of some of their core players. You know, Even the guys who started slow uh, came on, showed what they can do. I think there's something here. It's not like there's no clay to mold. Again, I think the best players of the next great Canucks team, I think a lot of them are already here, mm-hmm. including probably the best players that will be on that team. But that doesn't mean that this team's close. And it doesn't mean that the work ahead's not difficult. And it doesn't mean that you can make the playoffs and just assume that, hey, you know, bring it all back next year under Bruce Boudreaux. They're going to get the best goaltending in hockey again. And they're going to shoot 18% on the power play again. Like, there's a lot of things that have underpinned Vancouver's tremendous success under Boudreaux, the 11th best point percentage in the league since he took over, that are likely to prove, to prove ephemeral. And so if the club's going to build off of what they did in the last 53... It's going to require a significant upgrade to the speed of the team, to the scoring depth in the bottom six, to the blue line itself. And I think you can know that and be upset with it and be critical of the organization for allowing, you know, another listless year to occur for, for missing the playoffs for a seventh time in the last eight seasons. Like, I think you can be disappointed. In fact, I think you should be disappointed by all of that. And I don't think that should take away from what was accomplished by these players, by this coaching staff in the latter 55 games. And I don't think that should take away from any sense of, you know, optimism about the direction that Jim Rutherford and and a relatively progressive new look management group may take this team. I, I think you have to be able to understand both at once. I think that dual nature is so crucial to being a Canucks fan. It's certainly a, a really crucial, I think, to having a realistic, sober assessment of where this team is at what they've accomplished, and where they have to go next. You just really have to be able to separate the roster itself and the way it was constructed, right, with spending and going all in on this season versus what the players and the coaching staff did in the circumstances that they found themselves in. And again, the players deserve a share of the blame for digging themselves in that hole. Of course they do uh, in the first 25 games, but you still, as you said, you have to be able to separate the two things and recognize the extremely positive steps that were taken by the players and just the effort in general, because who knows, right? There's no guarantee that, wow, this surge that they went on is going to all of a sudden translate next season. It could, but we, we don't necessarily know that. So you can be optimistic about it for the future, but you also, I think, first and foremost, just have to, as you said, tip your hat uh, to what these guys were able to do, and especially also the coaching staff uh, led by Bruce Boudreau after they took over. And lots of text to those effects coming in. Uh, Marcus and Gibson says, you know, incredibly satisfied with the effort this year. Our core has proved they are capable. Now we need to build around it. Mike and Burnaby says, I was really hoping the boys could finish off this playoff push. Uh, now I'd like to see them go 3-1 and one the rest of the way, finish off with 41 wins. A real 500 team. Uh, and this one from Rager says, I was frustrated with the Ottawa game. Now that the playoffs are all but done, I'm proud of these guys and the way they battled back to make it a fun run at the end of the season. Not ending it the same way last year did. Now they'll win the next three games, he says, and lose the last game against the Oilers in a shootout and miss by one point. There is some uh, some extra bonus 
infamous gallows humor in the Dunbar Lumber text love message it. inbox. So you you always love to see that one, Drancer. Keep those thoughts coming in. There's some uh, some really good ones. I want to talk about Elias Pettersson and some of the other Canucks top players. Susan and North Van has a good question that we'll get to on the other side. Keep your thoughts and questions coming in. 650-650 as well. Uh, I also want to say, Drancer, the Abbotsford Canucks, they're on a seven-game win streak, eight-game point streak. They take on the division-leading Stockton Heat tonight in Stockton. Uh, the Abbey Canucks, third place in the Pacific Division, four games left in the regular season. Staying in the top four means the Canucks will host all of the games in the first round of the Calder Cup playoffs, best of three series. That would go, again, if they stay in the right position, May 4th, 6th, and 7th at the Abbotsford Center. And you can visit tickets.abbotsfordcanucks.ca for tickets and info, and especially with the Canucks season probably winding down, I think it's going to be really interesting to watch and keep an eye on what the Abbotsford Canucks are doing. So if you're interested in tickets oh, for the Calder Cup playoffs. And Vasily Colson. Exactly. And Vasily Pod Colson. Yeah. Let's get into that. Let's get into some expectations for Vasily Pod Colson if he yeah. plays in the AHL playoffs, which I expect he will. Um, he was papered down to facilitate that. Vasily Pod Colson against inferior competition yes. after this season this in the NHL. Version, like, this oh version boy. of Vasily Pod Colson? Yeah. Um, let's, let's go. So again, we'll get into that. Again, it's tickets.abbotsfordcanucks.ca if you want to try to secure some of your tickets for the Calder Cup playoffs. And I will also mention Abbotsford Canucks uh, head coach Trent Cull is going to join the People's Show uh, at 2.30 today, part of the weekly Abbey Report. And I'm pretty sure the subject of Vasily Pod Colson will come up. We'll dive into it as well next. Keep your thoughts coming in. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Trance here with you. Final segment of the week. For the show, Canucks, of course, play in Calgary tomorrow. I believe Bruce Boudreau is scheduled to meet with the media at some point in this hour. If there's an update about any of the players who took knocks last night in Minnesota, Brad Richardson, JT Miller above them, uh, among them, we'll try to get that to you as soon as we can. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. And, Drancer, we mentioned Jamie, it. Just go Jamie, ahead. Jamie, it does sound like Boudreaux met with the media while we were on break. Right. On Brad Richardson breaking his nose last night, uh, Boudreaux said, well, Brad's not pretty to begin with, <laughs> according to Patrick Johnston of Post Media. Says there are no concerns at the moment about Richardson's status or JT Miller's. Great. Uh, Miller, of course, blocked a shot with his knee going into tomorrow's game. So there you go. That is the latest from Bruce Boudreaux on the status of Brad Richardson and JT Miller. And uh, we've said it so many times, but uh, easy guy to root for and enjoy watching Bruce Boudreaux and enjoy listening to. And that, that quote on Brad Richardson, yet another example of that. And uh, we touched on it just quickly going into break, Drancer. But uh, as the Canucks playoff chances wind down, there is still a, a lower mainland Canucks team or Fraser Valley, I should say. I never know where. Uh, where the lower mainland ends exactly. So I'll say Fraser Valley team go into the playoffs. The Abbotsford Canucks are going to go to the uh, Calder Cup playoffs. And as I said on the other side of the break, they've got a chance to host all three games in the best of three first round series in the Calder Cup playoffs. And that's going to be interesting for a whole host of reasons, right? It's the team's first season here in Abbotsford. Uh, they've got NH NHL prospects like Jack Rathbone there, but as you mentioned, the, the number one reason that I think a lot of Canucks fans will really be paying close attention to that Calder Cup playoff race is the fact that Vasily Podkolzin 
could feature in it. As you said, he was papered down at the trade deadline to make that a possibility. And if, you know, you go back to, I don't know, December, January, right? And you had said, uh, hey, Vasily Podkolzin is going to play for the Abbotsford Canucks in the Calder Cup playoffs. That would have been really exciting, right? Because Podkolzin had showed pretty well, shown flashes, done some impressive things at the NHL level. And you would have said, oh, wow, okay, good chance for him to get some big minutes, you know, play in, in high-pressure games, see what he can do there. Now, all of a sudden, the version of Vasily Podkolzin that we've seen uh, over what? I don't know, the last month, maybe a little more than that. The prospect of that guy going down, being the clear-cut best player on the team, potentially, right? Best player on the ice on a lot of nights, shouldering that load and having a chance to show what he can do, that's got to be very, very enticing for Canucks fans to get a chance to see. Well, yeah. I mean, we were talking about a guy who was a point-per-game player in the KHL playoffs last year, right? And we're talking about a guy whose best hockey came in the latter 10%. Of the Canucks season to this point, right? The last seven games, Vasily Podkolzin has looked like a completely different player. He is built with his frame, right? 200 pounds, six foot one, hands the size of an ox. I don't know, whatever. Whatever sort of um, old, like, wives' tale <laughs> um, sort of um, superlative you want to use. He's built for playoff hockey. He plays a heavy game. Bulldozer out there. And so what's he going to be able to do in the American League? I, I mean, I think he should be. And my expectations for him will be that he's the best player on the sheet every night he steps on the ice at the American League level in the American League playoffs. And one of the reasons that the Canucks papered him down after the deadline to preserve his eligibility to play in the American League playoffs, and I think there was some consideration about doing the same with Niels Hoaglander. In fact, I think it might have happened if not for Hoaglander's injury, which you know happened right before the trade deadline. And I think the club was pretty... Um, understanding even early on that it was likely that he was going to miss, if not the rest of the season, then enough time that they wouldn't be throwing him into American League playoff action. So right. I think I think the conversations occurred over both players. I think there was a chance both would have gone down if Hoaglander had been healthier. But Bud Colson, for sure, the logic behind this is to send him down and give him a chance to be the man, right? And what I mean by that is be a featured part of the power play, be a featured part of the penalty kill play massive minutes five on five in all situations and dominate as a first line player at a level at which he should be the best player on the ice. Every time he steps on it, you're never going to be that player at the age of 20 in the NHL, but Pod Colson very well could be that player in year one, this playoff run for the Abbotsford Canucks in their inaugural season at the American league level, airdropping Pod Colson with Patan and Lockwood. And honestly, I'd kind of like to see like, Maybe you play Calgary straight up, but thereafter, like, what? Why not give that those three, or mm. maybe it's Dries, Lockwood, Pod Colson. Like, give them some run, give them some games to get acclimated to one another in advance of the HL playoffs. Particularly once you're mathematically eliminated, I'd love to see that. I think it's worth doing, and I'm very, very curious to see what Pod Colson does in the AHL. Here's predicting point per game plus dominates. That's my prediction, and 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 you know me, I'm not saying that. To play to anybody. Right. I don't care. <laughs> I'm saying that because I believe it. I've seen this guy play at the NHL level. He plays heavy hockey. The American League level is not a huge step down. It's a very good league. But players as good as Pod Colson, with as much pedigree as Pod Colson, at Pod Colson's age and physical maturity, they rarely play in the American League. And when they do, they dominate. I expect Pod Colson will 
should he go down and play for the Abbotsford Canucks. It'll be a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, it absolutely will be. Quickly before we move off Abbotsford, this just occurred to me. There was always the expectation that Jack Rathbone would come up to the NHL to play games for the Canucks towards the end of this season. But the way it's shaping up now, with only four games remaining, the team's not mathematically eliminated, and the Abbotsford Canucks are on fire and gearing up for a Calder Cup playoff run, are we going to, and again, this is just off the cuff, are we going to have to wait until next season, Drancer, do you think, to see Rathbone back in the NHL? Most likely. I mean, they'd have to withstand three injuries before they could get him onto the right, roster using right, the emergency right. recall protocol because right. they don't have any They've used all nor- of their ordinary course call-ups. So yep. you, need, you need three player injuries, skater injuries, to get Rathbone in the lineup. Now, at this time of year, once you're mathematically eliminated, there's probably three or four guys who, who could, could be go shut on in. Down. Yes, yeah, right. I mean, that's that's how the NHL works. An 82 game season is grueling. A lot of these guys play very, very hurt. Uh, a lot of guys rush back from injuries to to help their team win in meaningful games. I don't think it would be hard to get him onto the roster if you really wanted to. There's probably a few guys dealing with nagging things that could be shut down and will be shut down once the, you know. Playoffs are mathematically done once there's the little Y beside the Canucks name in the standings, which is just a matter of time at this point. Yeah. So possible. I kind of don't think we'll see him play in the American uh, play in the NHL over the balance of the season. And I don't think that's a problem, by the way. Uh, you know, I'd love to see what he can do. I mean, I think the world of Jack Rathbone as a, as a player and prospect, right? I mean, there is a chance, I suppose, that he becomes one of those, like, TJ Brennan, Andy DeLome, um, like, tweeners. You know what I mean? Unbelievable point producer in the AHL, but doesn't have the defensive mm-hmm. jobs to play at the NHL level. I don't think that's going to happen, though, because of his work rate, his overall like chip on his shoulder. There's a core of steel to Rathbone's game, even if he's not the biggest player. And he's such a good skater. He's just such a good skater. I think he's going to be a really good NHL player, probably for a really long time. So I'm not worried about him hitting it, hitting that, you know, um, ceiling as it were of his development. What I don't love about his first two professional seasons, and this has nothing is you know, in 2020, 2021, he played, spent some time on the taxi squad. He had to quarantine as he went up and down. Ends up playing 16 games, right? 16 games total in his first professional season. In his second professional season, there's COVID. There's an injury. The There's flooding. The team's sort of up and down itself. He plays nine games in the NHL and 35 in the AHL. That's 44 games. Right now in the American League, he's got 39 points in 35 games. He's got 10 goals. This is a defenseman. He had a Gordie Howe hat trick the other night. Yep. He's cooking. He's cooking. So let him cook in the same spot. Just let him be. Let him get some stability for the first time in his pro career. Let him dominate in the AHL playoffs. Leave him where he is. There's no benefit to having him swap leagues twice over the course of of two weeks. He's played 17 NHL games. There's no, there's nothing he can learn at the NHL level that he hasn't seen in 17 games already over four games remaining or three games remaining after their, or two games remaining after they're mathematically eliminated. However, it actually crumbles. Um, stability, stability games, you know, a, a consistent approach to his development. That's what he hasn't had for two years. That's more important for him over the balance of the season. For me, I think you leave Rathbone where he is. Um, The Canucks probably could find a way to bring him up if they really wanted to. I bet you they don't, and I think that's the right call. It's a similar argument 
to the one uh, the case to be made for sending Vasily Pudkolzin there as well, right? I mean, he's not at the same level as Pudkolzin is, obviously, as a young player, but give him an opportunity in high-stakes games in a really good professional league to carry a big load and continue to hone his craft there. And then, as you said, the added bonus of a little bit of stability for a player who hasn't had a ton. It is far from the end of the world uh, if, as I said, you know, Canucks fans have to wait over the summer and into the preseason and potentially the regular season next year to see Jack Rathbone back with the Vancouver Canucks. And, and by the way, uh, Spencer, an ex-Abbotsfordian, he says, texted and said, Abbotsford counts as the Lower Mainland. However, they are outside of the Greater Vancouver Regional District. That's right. They're part of the Lower Mainland, not part of the Greater Vancouver area. So shout out to Spencer for that one. I wanted to read this text as well. It came in from Susan in North Vandrancer, and she says, what do you think about Elias Pettersson reaching 30 goals in a down year. And I'm really glad that Susan texted that question in because I just, uh, I, I was thinking about the game last night and Elias Pedersen has two more goals. As Susan said, hits the 30 goal mark. He's probably going to lead the team in goal scoring. And I just have this vision of, you know, in 20 years or something, right? When we're telling the story of Elias Pedersen's career and people will look back and say, oh, and remember, you know, that. That 2021-2022 season when there was so much concern about Elias Pettersson, and then people who are you know too young to remember it, they'll they'll look to go to Hockey DB or whatever the equivalent is this far into the future. They'll they'll you know they'll download it straight to the computers in their brains or whatever, and they'll look at the stats and they'll say, wait, hold on a second. Why on earth was everyone so concerned about this guy in 21-22? He has 65 points in 76 games. He's got an off chance to hit 70 points on the season. In all likelihood, he's going to finish with his career high in points, already has his career high in goals, and we've talked a lot about the the discrepancy between the first half of Elias Pettersson's season and the second half. This has gone far beyond just a discrepancy, right? Like this, what we are seeing from Elias Pettersson in the second half of the season has been nothing short of sensational. He is on, in in the last 39 games, he's on a 50-goal, 100-point pace, Drancer. Then you consider the two-way impact he has, the fact that he's killing penalties and, in fact, has been instrumental in turning this team's penalty killing around, the impact he has on the power play, all of that... I mean, that is, if you do that over the course of an 82-game se- game season, that's a heart Trophy candidate profile. And I really don't think that's hyperbole, right? And it doesn't... No, it's not. It, the, 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 the first half of the season was absolutely dismal. There is no doubt about that. But we, I don't think we can just fall into the trap of saying, oh, yeah, the first half was bad and the second half was good. The first half was awful. The second half has been absolutely phenomenal and for me to answer Susan's point you know what do you make of him hitting 30 goals in a down year my take on Elias Pettersson's season at this point is I feel more confident about his future and about the role he can play with the Vancouver Canucks going forward than I did in September going into the season he has not just erased any concerns or any doubt that he might have introduced in the first half of the season he's surpassed that and in my mind at least he's raised what I see is his potential ceiling by turning in this type of performance over the last almost 40 games. Yeah. I mean, he had 17 points in his first 34 games and six goals, and he's got 25 goals in 42 games since it's wild. Um, you know who in early January, by the way, said that Pedersen would lead the team in scoring over the latter half of the season. Yeah. Was that me? That, was that, 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 I seem to recall it. 
Oh, cool. I'm going to just uh, take a second here while I pat my back. <laughs> All right. Nice. Uh, feeling like. But here's the thing. I didn't expect him to come back and actually to, yeah. lead the no, team no, no, in no. goals. Yeah, not just in the second half. To actually potentially finish as the team's leading goal scorer. He had, on January yeah. 15th. This isn't, a, is it, this isn't even in the Boudreaux era. Like, he continued to slump pretty much for, like, what, six weeks after Boudreaux took over. On January 15th, he had six goals. Now we're sitting here talking about him easily. With with room to spare, cresting the thirty goal mark transfer, it's it's outrageous when you look at it. Outrageous! It's incredible. And so you know, look, Pedersen's an elite player. Period. Period. Pedersen's an elite player. And when he is winning games for this team, they are capable of hanging with just about anybody, particularly with Demko and Net. Right? I mean, when you have a guy who bends, like. I'm, not, I'm sorry, I'm not going to go with Benz. Defies gravity the way that Pedersen does. Like, here's the thing about Pedersen. Over the last 42 games, he's taken 103 shots and scored 25 times. And usually, when a player's on that type of streak, I'd say, oh, well, you know, they're probably not going to continue that. With Pedersen, I'm never sure. Pedersen might sustain <laughs> that. Like, that's what he does. He's, he's a marksman who bends, you know, entirely the usual fixed percentages of the game to his will, right? Like we're talking about a guy who's shooting 24% over the latter half of the season on the year. He's at 17.4%. That's below his career mark below his career mark. He's a 16 and a 17 and a half percent shooter. If you remove the 34 games that he struggled with coming back from injury from the sample, like we're talking about an 18, 19% career shooter. It's incredible. It's it doesn't make sense. And yet when you see him pick those corners, when you see that goal that he scored last night to open the scoring for Vancouver, I mean it's not luck. It's not luck. It's not unsustainable. He literally can make goaltenders have an 8.30 save percentage when they're facing shots that he takes. It's it doesn't make sense. And and yet it's something he's done persistently now, right? 241 games, 17 and a half career shooter. It's Wild. When you have a player like that, when you have a player that, you know, bends space and time, defies gravity, does, like, he's a force. He's a force of nature with that finishing game. When you have a player capable of doing those types of things, right, you have to be able to build a really good team. Like, you have to. You, you, You have a guy capable of winning games as an individual player. And the Canucks have a few of those guys, right? JT Miller did it in stretches of this season, too. For sure he did. Mm -hmm. Thatcher Demko, for sure. But he's a a goaltender, a little bit different. But they have multiple skaters that can step up and win games as individuals. The the question is, now, is can you build a team structure around them that enhances what they do well? And in Pedersen's case, you know, the main thing that they need is to find ways to get him moving vertically. Because as dangerous as his shot is on the power play or in stationary positions or off the cycle, Pedersen on the rush, oh my goodness, it's incredible. And yet the Canucks are like the, have generated the sixth fewest rush chances in the league um, this season, right? Why? Well, they don't have a defense that gets the puck moving the right way, right? They, they don't play a, a style under Boudreaux where they even try to, to hold the puck. They just sort of punt and hunt, send it in the neutral zone. And look, it's worked. It's disguised the flaws of this team. They've won games. But if you're going to build a team that allows Pedersen to be a 100-point player, to, to take advantage of his skill set, to be in the type of position that Johnny Gaudreau is in, 
in Calgary, right? Or that Austin Matthews is in, in um, Toronto, Toronto, or that Jonathan Huberto is in, in Florida, right? Like, you know, uh, if you want to put him in the right positions to be 110% of the player that he can be, to maximize his potential, um, finding a defense score that can transition the puck more has to be task A, A, the first task. And, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see what they do because Pedersen is special. He's proven it. There should be no argument. I don't think there is an argument. And it's nice to see him play to his potential over the latter half of the season. Having a full, healthy offseason, an extended offseason, I think that's going to be good for him. I still think there's some work to be done in terms of the core strength, in terms of the skating stride. I still don't think Pedersen is nearing what he could be in this league. And that's a scary thought because he is really, really good. Yeah. Um, so, you know, don't waste it. Don't waste it. Put this guy on a good team. Put this guy on a team that can transition the puck with some, you know, dynamism. I want to see that. I want to see that so desperately. He deserves it. Fans in this market deserve it. It's going to be a lot of fun to watch. And if you were just to try to pick one thing that from the second half of the Canucks season that you think has a really good chance to translate for next year, because like, we've gone through a lot of the things that you know may, might not translate, probably won't translate, you could argue. Elias Pettersson's performance, and maybe it won't be a 50-goal, 100-point pace, but just to perform at a high-level impact like he's been doing, that's the thing I would bet on. And that, again, it's not enough to push this team up the tiers, up the hierarchy of the NHL to where they really want to go. That in and of itself is not enough to accomplish that, but it's an incredibly important piece to to work towards that ultimate goal. And again, more than what Bruce Boudreaux has done for the team, more than virtually anything else, if you're looking for reasons to be optimistic about this team going into the summer, I know we still have four games left, don't worry, we'll, we'll be covering those, but going into next year, going in beyond that, it's the performance of Elias Pettersson and what he has done. And, and the point you make about, you know, his shooting percentage, yeah, it's up around 25% or something like that. But as you said, okay, a, a slump for Elias Pettersson when he's playing at this level, bad, a string of bad luck, I mean, that might be like a 15% <laughs> shooting percentage, right? Because he's just that good and he picks his spots so well. Um, I want to I read this text. You will get 35-ish good games out of Pedersen every season, along with stretches where he seems aloof and his body language is contagious in a bad way. But Durant's, and it's spelled D-U-R-A-N-T-Z, which I actually kind of like and might adopt, and most Canucks fans like shiny things while constantly disrespecting their best forward and then in brackets Horvat, a player who I also have defended at length and always have a lot of time for. So I, I'm not sure that there's any disrespect being uh, ladled in Horvat's direction, certainly not from this program. But here's the thing about the body language being contagious in a bad way, the seeming aloof. I don't think those are unfair things to have mentioned, especially this season, especially in the wake of the slow start, how that hurt the team, the commentary in the offseason about wanting to play in a, in, in, in a winning organization. Like, I do think one challenge for this organization now, and you heard Bruce Boudreaux talk about it last night. He called him a big game player. He said when the game matters most, Pedersen's at his best. He steps up on the big stage. He wants to play in those games, and he leads our team in scoring by a big margin when it's on the line. You know, making sure that Pedersen's fully invested, making sure that he's empowered, that he feels like this is his team, that he understands the responsibility that that comes with that, I I do think that's part of what the organization needs to figure out and accomplish. Like, I, I do think there's 
you know, he doesn't wear a letter. Um, you know, re- extending him wasn't a priority. It waited. It waited and waited until well into the offseason. Actually, training camp had already begun. Uh, I do think empowering this player, uh, setting things up to take advantage. Like, when I talk about setting things up to take advantage of his game, it's not just from a hockey perspective. It's also the off-ice stuff. It's also creating a culture where he's either the man or he's learning to be the man from someone who he looks up to and understands is that guy creating that type of dynamic. That's a big challenge here too, because you don't get the best out of people. You don't get them to 110% of their potential. You don't get the extra 5% out of performers if you don't handle that side of it. And I do think that's a big test for Jim Rutherford and company. I think that's a test that they've passed in the in previous stops. Mm-hmm. I think it's been crucial to what they've accomplished. You think about Eric Stahl with Rod Brindamore. You think about the James Neal trade, which we discussed at length yesterday, and some of the cultural moves that they'd made in Pittsburgh. Recreating that dynamic here with an eye toward maximizing Pedersen's potential. I do think that's... A, a huge underrated task that the club has to sort of figure out, f- figure out how to navigate this off season. We're at, we're out of time, but again, just to tie it into the conversation we had yesterday about, you know, the ties between Patrick Alvin and Bill Guerin, as you pointed out what Alvin Guerin Rutherford all did in Pittsburgh in terms of culture, Patrick Alvin, I think we can very safely stay understands the importance of what you're talking about and is willing to make significant moves to make sure that infrastructure and that environment exists. I, I think it's a very fair thing to to br- uh, bring or bring up about Elias Pedersen. It's absolutely something he has to grow into. And if I had to bet, I would bet that the Canucks front office is on the same page. They're they're aware of that and they're thinking about ways to make it happen. Because again, from from Alvin, from Rutherford, from a guy like Bill Guerin who's been who's worked with them, we have seen a willingness to prioritize that type of culture. Uh, Minor Matt texts in. Good show today, guys. Definitely put a lot of smiles on my face, uh, Matt. Great to see you back in the text message inbox, buddy, and I hope uh, some other people got some smiles on their face as well on a Friday afternoon. We will be back on the weekend. Enjoy the game tomorrow. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.